Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Delaney, a shoulder surgeon in Dublin, Ireland. For this episode, I've been invited to be a guest host, and I will try to live up to the high standards set by the regular hosts, Rachel Frank and Peter Chalmers. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in today's podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the ASES, University College Dublin, or of the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode focused on one of my favorite topics, shoulder instability. And we've been asked specifically to discuss two important and somewhat controversial shoulder instability procedures, the Latarget procedure and the Remplissage procedure. For this podcast, we've invited two world-class experts on shoulder instability, both of whom have published widely on these procedures and who may come from slightly different camps when it comes to soft tissue versus bony reconstruction for instability. We are joined by Dr. Patrick Denard, a shoulder and elbow surgeon out of the Oregon Shoulder Institute in Oregon. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Ruth, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast, especially with, with uh, one of my mentors, Jill. And we are also joined by a surgeon who many of us have come to think of as, as the father of the modern Latarget procedure, Dr. Gilles Valls from Lyon, France. Bonjour, Gilles, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's a pleasure to be here with you and with Patrick. Thank you for inviting me here. So I'd like to start with you, Gilles. I remember you telling me as a fellow the story of how the Latarget procedure originally came to be. And some of our younger listeners might not know how Michel Latarget happened to perform his first Latarget procedure in the 1950s in Lyon. Can you, um, can you tell us that story? Yes, Michel Latarget was a general surgeon in Lyon, and he attended the operating room with a Professor Triar. Professor Tria was a true orthopedic surgeon, one of the first in France, actually. And um, Latarget just came to visit him and to see what he was doing, because at that time, the general surgeon in France in the 50s uh, were doing also uh, orthopedic surgery. So he saw Professor Tria doing the classic Tria procedure, which is a, a kind of osteotomy of the coracoid at the basis and lowering, medializing the coracoid in order to, uh, to put it uh, lower and to prevent the dislocation. It's the different procedure from the Latarget. So Latarget said, oh, it's a nice procedure. I'm going to do that. So Latarget went in his, in his operating room and tried to do the Latarget, but I tried to do the three-hour procedure. But during the surgery, uh, he broke completely the coracoid. Instead of doing only a osteoclasia, is that correct? Osteoclasia? Yeah, an osteoclasia. Yes. Osteoclasia. He just broke completely the coracoid and discovered that he did not know what to do. So he just said, give me a screw. And he just put this, uh, the coracoid in front of the glenoid through the subscapularis with a screw. So it was uh, like this that the Latarget procedure started. That's pretty amazing. It sort of started by accident. By um, accident, exactly. Yeah. And Patrick, do you think it's probably fair to say that the Latarget procedure is, is less favored by North American surgeons than by Europeans um, in general? Um, I mean, why do you think that might be? Or, even, or do you even agree with that statement? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think a lot of it yeah. over time, right? 
know, if you uh, if you've been in if you're in Europe, you've been exposed to Latterge more. If you've been in um, North America in your training, the, the upbringing has been bank art transitioning to arthroscopic bank art, and and now we're in Plasage. So, like a lot of things, it follow patterns of our mentors, right? Yeah, for sure. I think we maybe don't spend as much time you know, in our training in North America, doing open instability surgery of any kind, uh, you know, there's a, maybe we've become more comfortable with arthroscopic um, procedures and maybe that's part of it. And then I think it's the population too. I don't know how you guys feel about um, the population, you know, here in Ireland, I have a lot of collision athletes. So I do a lot more latter J's now than I saw when I was a resident in Boston. I think your comment about open instability repair is really interesting because it for me in my training, I've actually never done an open bank or repair. You know, I finished residency in 2010 and fellowship in 2011, and I never saw it during any of my training. So it speaks to that comfort level, you know, other than mm -hmm. open, open ladder J, but no, I didn't see any open arthroscopic bank or open bank or repairs. <laughs> I think that's that's probably the same for most of us that trained um, around the same time or a little bit later. Um, Gilles, you have shown impressive results with the latter J procedure, and I think I know the answer to this one, but maybe just for the benefit of all of our listeners, I'm going to ask you, is or, or was there any place at all in your practice for soft tissue surgery and shoulder instability? Purely soft tissue procedure uh, for entire instability. I cannot say never because it's, it's stupid, but... Uh, I tried to do a capsular shift, according to Charles Neer, for mm -hmm. multidirectional hyperlaxity with a very loose shoulder, loose patient. I did not work, so I did some. I, it did not work. Uh, cases of inst entire instability with rotator cuff tear, also maybe controversial, because sometimes you may repair the cuff, repair the subscap, and avoid the bone block procedure. Uh, I did work for few entire instability with subscap repair, but few, few of them, because it's mm -hmm. pretty rare. Bob Neweiser reported a series of 11 cases of entire instability with an isolated tear of the subscap. I remember mm -hmm. this paper and he reported very good results with just repair of the subscap. So, I did that several times, several times, few times. Uh, otherwise, I tried in my career, of course, I tried the arthroscopic bancard repair. That was in 1987 after Morgan reported his technique in uh, journal arthroscopy. I tried, I did about 100 cases. I followed my patient and I reported the results. Uh, I had 50% recurrence rate in case of recurrent anterior instability, not painful shoulder, but recurrent anterior instability, so 50% recurrence rate. At that time, it's true that we did just, we just repair the labor at the anterior inferior part of the glenoid. We did not do, uh, rampissage, of course. We did not put anchor inferiorly or posteriorly. I did some uh, interval, rotator interval closure at the same time. 
Uh, I did slap repair already at that time, but I did not perform rampissage and post in posterior inferior capsular repair. So yes, I did. I did some cases without bone block, just purely soft tissue procedure. And honestly, I was not very happy with my results. But I had less satisfactory results than with a lethargy. Mm -hmm. And Patrick, um, how do you make the decision in your practice between a soft tissue surgery and a lethargy or, or any bony reconstruction? What things make those decisions for you? Yeah, it's a combination for me of bone loss and the patient. Um, if the patient, you know, if they have bone loss, then especially if the patient has had multiple dislocations where I can see obvious findings on x-ray, then I will make sure I get a CT over an MRI. And if they have over 15% glenoid bone loss, then I will make a case-by-case -case decision. Um, and for instance, if, they, if the patient's less than 25 years of age, if they're a high-risk athlete because they're doing a lot of contact, I'll actually go to a ladder J in that case. Um, you know, but conversely, if I run into a 35 year old who is, you know, doing some biking and maybe some tennis and they just have not had appropriate treatment, even if they have larger um, amounts of bone loss, I may consider remplissage because that patient's at lower risk. And we actually have a, a paper that's accepted uh, um, in OJSM that looks at patients with substantial bone loss and we had reasonable results. So it's just, it's still like everything. It's not, there's not absolute numbers. It's a case by case, right? Yeah, I agree. Sorry, I think Patrick, we... Sorry, Patrick, sorry, when you see, when you say remplissage, you mean arthroscopic bone cartilage plus remplissage or just remplissage? Bank art with remplissage. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I think, you know, as you said, it's like everything. We spend a lot of time at meetings talking about on track and off track and trying to measure everything. Um, but also there's the, the individual patient and the demands that they're going to put on, on their shoulder. Um, You're, Gilles, do you, the, uh, yeah. so the, pro the problem with the on track, off track, it's a nice way to try to understand the problem and the amount of bone loss, but it doesn't take into account patient age, patient activity level and, and soft tissue laxity. So I think you sure. know, there's patients who they may be on track, but you actually need to do a uh, remplissage. And that's, an, that's another one that we just looked at a series of people with subcritical bone loss. And we define that as less than 15%. And we had lower dislocations when we added remplissage for those patients and something like over 90% of them were on track. It wasn't statistically significant, but it was still... 9% in the isolated Bancart group compared to a couple of percent in the remplissage group at two-year follow-up. So I think you still have to use your, your decision-making and, and understand the patient on these cases. Yeah, that's really true. That's so interesting. You can't just blindly trust, uh, trust numbers. Yeah. Gilles, do you think it's possible for surgeons who only occasionally do a Latergé procedure to achieve or replicate the results achieved by a surgeon like you who did a high volume of them with a lot of success? Do you think that there's an issue when somebody only occasionally does it? There is an issue, yes, because it's technically demanding. I, have, mm -hmm. I recognize that. Uh, you must be very precise. 
uh, I, I think that it's, it depends on your teaching. Uh, if somebody taught you how to do it correctly, everybody should be able to do it because it's not absolutely impossible to do it. But you need to learn it correctly. If you do not learn correctly, yes, there are some risks. The, the, the nerves are at risk. Also, you may have a fracture of the coracoid process. You may have uh, overhanging bone work in, on the, in the joint. So, yes, there are tips and tricks that you must know before doing that. And I would not encourage a young surgeon to do to do three latages a year. But on the other hand, I would not encourage him to do a three bancard repair with amplissage either. Uh, you need to practice to be good anyway. Mm -hmm. But yes, I recognize that the technique is demanding and you need, you need really to know each step, what are the risks, the traps for each step. And uh, so that is what I think about the technique really. Mm -hmm. And are both of you using sort of a classic uh, open technique um, with the, the coracoid in the classic position rather than any variations like congruent arc or anything? Um, maybe, Patrick, what's your technique when you do a ladder J? I do, I do a subscapular split with, with, with a, the classic technique. I do not do a congruent arc. No, I, I, um, I mean, first of all, I, it's... I feel like I'm a decent shoulder surgeon, and I still I still have a hard time with ladder J. Honestly, I mean, I do almost 300 uh, shoulder replacements, so I'm really comfortable with exposure, but I still struggle with ladder J. Um, yeah, out of all my procedures, that's the one that uh, you know I still watch Jill's video before I go and do the and do it again, and maybe it's the volume issue, um, but that that's my experience. But uh, you know, just getting back to your question, I do do the, the classic technique that Jill described. Um, the congruent arc, I think, is nice for the idea of having the biomechanics and the contour, but I really like the idea of having more surface area with the undersurface technique. Um, and uh, I think the subscapular split makes a lot of sense based on the literature. It is a lot more gene. I think if somebody's not going to do a lot of ladder J's, and they are going to do one. I think it's actually reasonable to do Burkhardt's technique and take down the top half mm -hmm. um, because that exposure part, to me, is at least is the most challenging in getting the graft placement right. Yeah, I think it certainly is an operation that deserves respect. Um, and I, 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 like you, Patrick, I still stress a little bit about ladder jays. I do most weeks one or two. Some weeks I have three of them. Oh, um, but because of our population, but you know, they're all big collision athletes, rugby players, but that means they have big deltoid, big pec, really thick subscap. It's a big muscle. And um, I still have a lot of respect for the operation. It's not just, for me, it's not just something easy, routine, but um, I think, you know, um, we've all learned from Gilles and we all watched that video. Also, there is some, there is maybe one point important I always did my, but, uh, my bone block procedure, my latage procedure, early in the morning. I always started the OR at 7 o'clock with one latage or two latage or three latage. I never 
did the lethargy in the afternoon because the patient is not relaxed. And especially if you have to operate on big athletes, it's crucial to do them in the morning and to have the anesthesiologist in the room because you can really have hard time if the patient is not relaxed, completely relaxed during the lethargy. And when I'm able to do it with three or four or five centimeter incision, it's just because of that. In the morning at seven o'clock, the anesthesiologist know exactly how long it takes for me and the patient is totally relaxed. And I've seen many times a surgeon or friends having a hard time just because the patient doesn't sleep or is not relaxed. So we really need to have a patient fully relaxed, especially the athlete, if you do, do not want to have hard time. That's a really good tip. I noticed when I visited you that you always started with them, but I didn't really know the reason. Um, often I start with them because I like to, you know, get it out of the way while I'm fresh. But I guess that's another really important reason that the, you know, all of the muscles that we're dealing with are, are pretty big. And the subscap, we as arthroscopists will look at the subscap tendon, right? And we don't see a lot of it. And we forget that this is a very big muscle on the, on the front of the scapula. So I think that's a really important tip about the muscle relaxation for everybody to think about. Yeah. Um, and then Patrick, for any of the maybe earlier career listeners who might not be so familiar, can you briefly go over what is involved in the remplissage technique and maybe outline for us how you do it? Yeah, sure. So tips wise, um, I, to me, one of the biggest things is making the decision early to do it. Um, I really think that, you know, first of all, I do all my scopes lateral and I think that if you're going to do really good instability repair, I think it's, I think there's some evidence that says that a lateral position is, is ideal. So I will typically scope, just start from the back, get a quick view, but I will very quickly go to an ASL portal to get the profile view of the glenoid and um, see to the back and assess the hill sacs lesion. And if I decide I'm going to do the hill sacs, to do a lymphosage, I will go ahead and put my anchors in right away. And then I will do my bank art repair. Then I'll come back and close the posterior capsule with my uh, remplissage. I hear sometimes people say, well, I do the remplissage if I can still see the hill sacs lesion after my bank art repair. And I don't think that's a good way to make the decision um, because you get swelling in the back area and it gets harder and harder to see as you go on. So anchor placement first, do the bank art repair, then come back and close. You know, as... <clears throat> Tips for that procedure, aside from getting to it early and doing ASL, I, I think it's important to come right in line with the defect and the posterior capsule. It's really, to me, it's really a posterior capsulodesis. And in fact, when you look at where the anchors are going through, you're actually going through um, a bit of the muscle in some cases. So I think it's really, it's, you're bringing down that capsule and you're, you're trapping a little bit of the muscle when you do it, actually. It's not really a tenodesis. I mean, if you think about the anatomy, I mean, the tendons don't extend over the uh, over the cartilage of the head where you have that defect, right? So, um, you know, I think it's just important that you come in line so you're not over tensioning or under tensioning. And uh, I just try to go right up to the edge of the cartilage defect for the most part, unless it's quite large, and then I may um, be a little less aggressive to just kind of split the difference, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
It sounds like from your in some of your recent publications, you have not really seen the problem of external rotation stiffness, which is one of the common things people criticize about the remplissage as a procedure. Is that something that you see, or do you think that's got to do with your choice of anchor placement? Yeah, I think it's probably um, a choice of anchor placement. Um, you know, overall, the literature doesn't really well um, bear that out, the external rotation loss. Um, it certainly was a concern early on. In the paper we did with um, Johannes uh, Barth out of France and Alex Laterman and Pablo Narbona, we did actually have lower external rotation in the uh, Rumpassage group compared to the Ladder J group. But most of those Ladder Js were done by Johannes, so there could be some variability in just how they were measured because we didn't have one reviewer. And interestingly, when we compared our bank cards to our bank card rumpassages, we had no difference in extra notation. So we had similar surgeons. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen it. Um, you know, and one of our studies said maybe there's a little less, but but uh, the other one did not. That's really interesting. And then how about both of these procedures that we're talking about? Do either of you ever consider needing to add a remplissage to a latage is that something Gilles, you've ever thought about you know with the hill sacks looks really big is there a limit to what a coracoid graft can handle or do you think that the overall mechanism of the latage is is always enough um well i've done once in my life when i was uh, visiting professor hardy in paris uh, that was probably 15 years ago and he presented with a patient with a regular anterior instability and he asked me to do the latarge procedure for the uh, for his department to to show how i do the technique and he said but look there is a heel sacs lesion and could you do a remplissage at the same time or it is not possible to do it with a latarge i said technically it's possible there is no no problem for to do that it's not necessary he said, oh, do you think it's possible to do the remplissage with the anterior and with the deltopectoral approach? I said, yes, it is not technically demanding. So we did it. It's just, I just put the arm in full internal rotation to get the infraspinatus uh, in front of the joint. And I did the remplissage at that time. I don't know how was the patient after, but he had also regular latage, so I'm not afraid. So anyway, it's possible to do it. I did it once just to show that it's possible to do, to do that at the, uh, via a deltopectoral approach. But for the other patient, the, the cases I know which are a problem with, lateral, with big heel sacs are epileptic patients with scissors. For a patient with scissors, recurrent anterior dislocation, uh, huge heel sac scission, it could be a good idea to add the remplissage. I'm not sure that it will prevent the recurrence because the recurrence are more related to the crisis, the seizures, than to the ill lesion. But it could be a, a good indication. Otherwise, if uh, we um, eliminate the patient with seizure, even with a regular heel sac lesion, I honestly do not need to do a, a, lat, a remplissage because I did not observe failure of the latarge procedure. So 
I, I would simply say that yes, you, if there is a big ILSAX, you can do, especially if you do an arthroscopic latage, you can do a remplissage, but uh, with open procedure, it has not been necessary in my experience. So it's the reason why I do not do it. Also, I think it's a good operation. I have no problem against it. Mm -hmm. How about if the patient has, I don't, you know, if the patient has a very small coracoid, I mean, we put so much time into pre-op planning our arthroplasty cases, and maybe it's not relevant or necessary for the instability or the, the latter J cases, but, you know, do you think it matters the patient's individual anatomy of their coracoid uh, if you have a small coracoid, or does that make no difference because you also have the sling and maybe the capsule? I think that it makes no difference. If you have a very small coracoid, it's usually because it's a very small lady or so, a very small patient. And uh, so you can put only one screw, of course, but the constraints on the screw will be much less. The patient has less muscles. So uh, for me, the, the type, the, the size of the coracoid is not a concern. How about you, Pat? Do you have situations where you combine like a bony procedure and a remplissage, like a, a latter in the front and a remplissage in the back, or do you trust the latter on its own for everything? Yeah, I've, um, I've done it, um, so I don't have a large series, but I've done remplissage after a open latter um, where somebody had persistent sense of instability. They were mainly positive apprehension, but they did not have true dislocation. Um, that was effective in that patient. Um, I've also done the combined bone loss where there's massive bone loss um, with a seizure patient. And um, I'm, I have somebody scheduled to do an arthroscopic bony bank or bone, uh, bone block with remplissage. And exactly what Jill said is seizure pain with just huge bone loss. Um, we, uh, just did a biomechanical study looking at that. We looked at free bone block versus remplissage, and we actually looked at, um, sorry, free bone block versus latter J, and we looked at the addition of remplissage in the free bone block patients biomechanically, and we did find that it improved stability in a large um, off-track bipolar bone loss model. I think there's some definitely some potential there as we continue to move toward arthroscopic because it's just going to be easier to facilitate that procedure, especially arthroscopic bone blocks versus free bone blocks versus, you know, arthroscopic ladder J, because I think that procedure is going to be easier to, to do for people. And then I think it'll, they'll probably recognize Hill Sachs lesions and we'll see an increase in that combination of procedure. So you think that an arthroscopic free bone block is going to be easier than an arthroscopic ladder J or easier than an open yes. ladder J or both easier than. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't have enough experience. I'm just, I've been working on this in the lab. Um, I have been a little, I was slow to really pursue arthroscopic ladder J just because of my volume of ladder J not being enough. I didn't feel to um, adopt that, but the free bone block techniques, I think, have gotten a lot easier, and and uh, I have found, at least in the lab, that I feel like it's a very straightforward procedure for me to to do. In fact, I think it's going to end up being easier for me to do than ladder J. Yes, but I can't mm. uh, tell you for sure yet. But I but I do believe that right now. I guess maybe the interesting comparison in the future will be 
an arthroscopic free bone block plus remplissage held against the classic open latter day as our, our gold standard, you know, with, with everything. Um, Gilles, um, this leads us on to the next topic really nicely. I was thinking about arthroscopic latter-day and all the evolution that has gone on, you know. Um, what do you think about the evolution of that technique, the different fixation options? Um, I mean, do we need it? Is there any advantage to, to going down this road, uh, do you think? Or, you know, can, it, can that ever be as good as um, the classic, I guess, what I and a lot of us call the Valsh procedure, or the, the modern latter-day, you know, where do you think we stand with, all of these arthroscopic variations now? Well, I think that the results reported by Laurent Lafosse uh, are wonderful, are really incredible. And I can testimony about that because I visited se uh, several times Laurent Lafosse. We did a symposium together comparing the results of arthroscopic uh, latarge with open latarge. And uh, Clearly, the results of the arthroscopic latarge are the same as the open latarge. But Laurent is a wonderful, incredible, incredibly skillful surgeon, and he's able probably to do something that other surgeons are not able to do, and I am not able to do what uh, uh, Laurent does. So I would say that uh, arthroscopic latarge could be the future for the surgeon, the young surgeon who takes time to learn how to do this technique and to accept uh, to, to spend two or three hours the first times to do that. And if they have a good teacher for arthroscopic uh, latarge, it is as good as open uh, latarge in my mind. And uh, I always recommend to the young surgeon to go visit uh, Laurent and to learn how to do it. So at the moment, Patrick, do you use arthroscopic bone block procedures much in your uh, practice, say versus open? I know you said maybe it's not high volume, but are you still more of an open latter surgeon? No, I've, I've been open latter I mean, I'm, I'm just transitioning. I've been playing with it in the lab last year and um, I'm, I think I've done my last letter, Jay, but well, you know, at least in terms of, you know, what I have scheduled going forward is bone block procedures. Right. So I guess we'll have to ask you again in a few months. Yeah. See, see how you stand uh, then. Patrick, may I ask you something? Yes. Just do, do you stop with arthroscopic latage because of complication or because of lack of time in the OR? So for what reason do you say that you prefer to move to another surgery? So I never did arthroscopic latarge. Um, I didn't. I didn't see the huge advantage to doing the, the latarge arthroscopically because I felt like I was still having to do a split in the subscapularis. I was dealing with um, additional variables that could increase my complication rate. I wasn't doing enough of it, so I thought, in that case, I'm doing open latarge. As the techniques have evolved for an open bone block, I see advantages there. One is the ability to add remposage like we're talking about in some cases, but the primary advantage to me is if I can restore the glenoid without violating the subscapularis. Because these patients to me are, have, a lot, have a high risk for arthritis down the line and going on to a shoulder replacement, et cetera. 
And to me, the latter J changes the type of shoulder replacement I do down the line. So I'm hoping by restoring their anatomy, I can preserve their subscapularis. And if they get post-traumatic arthritis, I can do a anatomic arthroplasty. That's my hope. So it's really, I, I just feel that there's some advantages to the free bone block over the ladder J. Did you observe oftentimes problems with the subscap after open lat upon latarge? You say I, that the subscap yeah, is short. I don't I don't I haven't been in practice, I don't think, long enough to see that. I don't see it immediately afterwards. What I see are the patients who have had a Bristow procedure 20 or 30 years ago, um, somewhere else, and I see, I've seen a fair amount of those with subscapularis atrophy or with um, even subscapularis tears. It's always hard to know what the surgeon did at the time so many years ago. Mm -hmm. But in those patients, when they've come to me with post-traumatic arthritis, well, a few of them have come to me with subscapularis tears that have actually gone and repaired arthroscopically, um, upper portion tears, um, or they'll come to me with post-traumatic arthritis and in that case, because there's um, the subscap's abnormal, I do a reverse. So, Ruth, I think it's important for me to, to outline, to point out that for me, the latarge procedure is a very good procedure. I do not hesitate to do it. But clearly, you must respect the subscap. And you, that means that if you want to do a, a correct latage, you must be able to do it through a split in the subscap and the never cut the subscap. I completely agree with Patrick that the main problem in the midterm or long term or even short term follow up after uh, surgery for instability if, if you violate the subscap. So, I defend the lata open latarge, but always preservation of the subscap, just split and no uh, tenotomy of the subscap at all. That's interesting because I know we mentioned earlier that maybe for somebody who doesn't do them very often, it's easier to take down the upper subscap like the Burkhardt technique. And so that's tempting for somebody who's not comfortable. But then you're, you know, um, giving yourself a higher risk of these problems later on. And uh, I think a lot of us, you know, deal with these patients who have high numbers of dislocations before they come and have their surgery. They're at risk of arthritis later, even if you do a perfect latage. And so um, I think it's, it's, as you said, a really important point that um, even if it's tempting to violate the subscap, I think if you're going to do an open latage, you have to learn to do it through the, the split. And I mean, one criticism of the latter day, I suppose, is that it's it's non-anatomic, and, and so when there's a complication, when some or when something goes wrong, things can get very difficult. And and revision options in terms of revising in an instability situation um, can be difficult because you go back in there and it's hard to define the anatomy as well. What are your thoughts, Gilles, about um, revision instability surgery after the latter day and the difficulties, or do you find that it's it's still possible to do that? without too much difficulty oh yes oh yes it's possible to do that uh, without difficulties i did it uh, many many times because i did many uh, revision after latage procedure from myself but also coming from elsewhere 
And uh, so there is a tricks that is very important to know is you should not follow the conjoint tendon to find the previous bone block and the screw. Because if you do that, you are directly in contact with the brachial plexus. So the secret, when you have to do a revision of a latage procedure, is go to the delta-pectoral approach and then move laterally, meaning outside. Do not go direct in the front or medial, just go lateral to see where is the bicipital groove and the subscap insertion. And when you see the subscap insertion, just split the subscap about two or three centimeters, open everything, open the joint, put a retractor inside the joint, and walk on the entire part of the glenoid from inside. And do not try to go outside to retrieve the to retrieve the screws. It's possible to do it from inside, and it's the best way to do it. So you split the subscap, you open the joint, you put a retractor inside the joint, you see the remnant of the bone block, if there is, you see the screws, you can take them out from inside the joint, and you can do a then evident procedure or free bone graft, like uh, Patrick was uh, speaking about, without any difficulties. Uh, of course, this free bone graft has no sling effect, but it works. We reported the results with an Irish surgeon, as you know, John Loon. He did, <laughs> when he, he visited me, he reported the results of the Eden Ibinet procedure for revision latage, and uh, we reported pretty good results. Failure we observed after that were always the same, Caesar, epileptic patient, and uh, voluntary recurrent anterior instability. Otherwise, uh, the patient were happy. So that means also that a free bone, bone graft is probably a very good procedure, as, uh, as Patrick said. I have nothing against that. I just do the latage because it's easy for me. It works. There is no, I have no reason to change. But I understand that a free bone graft, also according to Morder in Europe, is good procedure. I think there is no doubt about that. With or without amplitage, no problem. And Patrick, for you, have you had to go back in on many um, bone ladder J procedures um, to revise them that have, that have come into your hands? And have you know have you had any particular um, thoughts about that situation? Not too many, honestly. I mean, I think that uh, Jill covered that pretty well. Um, the only additional thing that I think to really add there is. I've taken a few screws endoscopically. You know, if you have a superior screw that's mm -hmm. that's uh, prominent, I've done that. Um, but I think you covered the revision aspect very, very well. And then I guess when we're talking about these two procedures, remplissage and latage, um, most of my patients are athletes. They're collision athletes. They're crazy to get back to their sport. They sometimes, you know, they come in and they they've heard from their teammates about how long it takes to get back to play from some of the different uh, types of surgeries that we do. Um, what are your typical return to play times for say a contact athlete, athlete Patrick, if you do say a arthroscopic bankart and remplissage, are you talking six months or how do you decide when you let them go back to full activity? 
I'm really conservative in general. I mean, with my cup repairs, with my return to play in general. So I think what you're getting at is ladder J versus Remplissage. And for me, it's six months in both cases. I know some people let it, mm -hmm. um, let people go back to contact sports at um, four months or maybe even three months. But um, I just, I, I just don't allow them to do it at that point in time. I'll let them go to the mm -hmm. gym at three months, but I don't want them to just be in contact sports at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And do you check a CT after a bony procedure before you release them, or are you happy based on that amount of time having gone by? I'm usually just looking at radiographs. Um, I, don't, mm -hmm. I only get a CT if I, I'm really concerned about something, but no, I just, uh, I like to um, look at the x-rays to see bony healing and then I'll, I'll let them, I try to hold them out till six months. Maybe some cases mm -hmm. with ladder J because I can see the healing a, a little bit earlier, but not routinely for me. Okay. And Gilles, how about in Lyon when you uh, take care of French collision athletes, rugby players, and you do a, a ladder J, when do you let them start contact training again? At three months. They are back to, the, to their sport at three months, uh, even high, high level. And I would say that it even easier with a very high level professional athlete because they ask that they want to be back to the sports as soon as possible and i have to recognize that i had some professional uh, soccer player going back to the uh, to the field playing offi uh, official tournament or official uh, game at two and a half months for example that happens wow so I, I'm not. Oh. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Even. I, I hope uh, none of. I hope none of my patients are listening to this. I, I guess they don't tune in. But if any of my patients hear this, I'm going to be in trouble. I hope none of them hear that they, there's a possibility to go at two and a half months. That would. Uh, oh yeah. That takes I, courage. I would, not, I would not recommend that, because uh, uh, it, we usually recommend three months. Uh, but we, our aim is really to put the patient in the good position to be back on the field really for official game at three months. And it's mm -hmm. usually what we try to do with Jean-Pierre Lyotard, the rehab doctor working with me. And it's usually possible. Again, some professional athletes before the visit of the third month already played. And I saw that in the newspaper uh, mm -hmm. that they played two and a half months and i know it's possible i would not recommend that but if they feel comfortable if they feel stable um why not it's probably so you judges it's probably population sorry Patrick, go ahead yeah it's population i think because what i hear jill saying is he was taking care of a lot of contact athletes and professional athletes that that's just not my population you know i take care of the high school athlete who um dislocated in season and i can I can typically shut them down for a longer period of time and bring them back. And if I had a lot of patients pushing me, maybe that would change over time. You know, with like rotator cuff or arthroplasty, as I think about it, I've probably, I've loosened up my rehab protocols as I've gone along because that's where my volume is and I've been pushed by those patients to do that. It's important also for professional. Yes. Because the, the president, the coach, the yes. push, you mm -hmm. and if you say no you will be back at six months yeah it, clearly they, they, they go and see another surgeon so yeah. mm -hmm. uh, it's not a good argument 
but it is an argument. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the professional setup athletes, you know, they will do their rehabilitation so much more intensively. It's their job. They have, you know, that's their full-time occupation to, to do this and yes. to get back on the field. So I guess, like we said about deciding about the surgery in the first place, it's somewhat of an individual decision, but no routine CTs for you, Gilles, before you let them back, or do you get CT scans on the post-op latter days? No. No, no routine CTs, just uh, plain x-rays. Uh, as you know, in France, we like to use a profile view of the glenoid, which is Bernajot view, uh, which shows very nicely the bone block, uh, but uh, just plain x-rays are enough for me. And then I have, finally I have one last question for, for each of you. Um, we covered a little bit, but I think maybe to emphasize Gilles, what are your top tips for a surgeon to get the latter day procedure right? Well, first, to learn it correctly, to know uh, by heart each step, by memory. I mean, do not think, what should I do now, what I have to do, and spend two minutes with your sponge to, uh, to think about the future step. So you must know everything by, by memory and be able to do it quickly. That is my first thing, good teaching. The second thing is to have a good anesthesiologist with you. Because if you have to fight during all surgery against big deltoid, big pec major, a big subscap, you cannot do a good job. So you need to have a patient fully relaxed and the anesthesiologist fully aware that the surgery can be done only with a completely relaxed patient. Otherwise, it will take two hours, you will have complication and so on. So that is the second uh, major thing. And the third point is to have the right instruments to do what you want. Because if you arrive at the time of the uh, coracoid osteotomy and you do not have the angulated saw or you do not have angulated osteotome, it can be very, very difficult to do it. So uh, I think that the retractor, also the type of retractor you use are crucial. If you have just retractor for huge surgery, it's not possible because you don't want to open the, the, the arm from the top to the bottom. So all these tricks are, I think, important. And it's what I would put in the top of the tricks. Thank you. And Patrick, for the remplissage, same question. You mentioned some of your tips earlier. What's your uh, kind of top tip or top couple of tips to get it right? And also feel free to add any of your tips for the Latterge as well, if you have some pearls. No, I don't have any tips to add to the master on Latterge. Um, I think um, just to reiterate some things we said, know your patient. Right. It's not it's, you know, yes, the glenoid track is is a tool, but know really what the patient risk factors are. I think once you are making the decision, I think you should be talking yourself um, out of remplissage, not into remplissage during an arthroscopic bank cart repair. If you go in with the perspective that you're going to talk yourself into it, you are going to say, well, I don't really need to do that. And we're seeing that the results show reduced recurrence with the additional remplissage with bank cart. So, I think you should have that frame of mind. And then view from the ASL portal technically and place your anchors first before the bank. Great. Thanks. 
Thanks so much. Well, I'd just like to thank both of you for uh, giving up your time to, um, to talk with us today and to share so much knowledge about these two instability surgeries. So many thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you and congratulations. And I wish you all the best for the Dublin meeting in September. Thanks so much. It's coming up soon. So hopefully we'll see some of our listeners there in person. Um, and for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, um, please don't forget to subscribe to the ASES podcast. I'm Ruth Delaney, and I want to thank the regular hosts, Rachel Frank and Peter Chalmers, for trusting me to host an episode for you. And uh, we look forward to the next one.